Peter says, so put away all malice and all deceit and all hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up to salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Then Paul writes to the Corinthians in chapter 3, beginning in verse 16. Do you not know that you are God's temple, that God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. The man writes, A few years ago, my wife and I were in Japan. I was there on business. But having arrived, our hosts asked us if we wanted to see the largest church in the world. And we said yes. And they took us in Tokyo to the fastest growing church in the world. It's called the Perfect Liberty Church. And it's a new sect of Buddhism. And when we got to those giant gates, they wouldn't let us in. So we had to stand out and look through those impressive gates, and there we saw acres of green grass. There in the middle of those acres of green grass, we saw a beautiful temple made of white stone. And immediately we could see when we looked at that marble why they called it paradise. But our host told us as we stood there that they had a simple theology, and it went like this. They taught that every person is a child of God, and that God's greatest desire for every person is that they would live at peace and joy in pursuing their own individuality. The church didn't care whether it was bird-watching or bocce, just as long as a person was expressing their individual self. The man says, days later, we were back in the United States, we were in a hotel room, and we happened to turn on the television, and there on the television was a religious broadcast. There were two people, two hosts, sitting on a, a overstuffed sofa, a sofa on a gaudy set, and they were talking together, and one said to the other, you know, God doesn't want us to be poor. He wants us not to suffer or be deprived. He wants us to live a life of peace and prosperity, doing what we want to do. In fact, we should ask him to help us do what we want to do. And suddenly the wife looked at the husband and said, I think we heard that message in Japan. You know, a dozen years ago, Newsweek magazine ran a cover story saying that the trend had been erased. 
The trend line had gone from downward to upward and that America was returning to the church. But interestingly, when you read the article, you discovered that they were returning to the church for a simple purpose, and that was not to align their lives with biblical, biblical truth, but rather they were there to create God in their own image. And you know, that's not new. And that's one of the things that excites me so much about being a Christian and being in a church like Hebron is that we are living today in a culture that's a perfect mirror image of the first couple of centuries. Shaping God into your own image is not a new concept. New age theology and philosophy is not at all new. The heart of new age philosophy and theology is that you are the most important person in the world. And everything should conform to your own desires. You know who taught that first? Who canonized that view? His name was Aristotle. And one of his students was a military man by the name of Alexander the Great, and he learned the lesson well. You see, when Jesus taught his first disciples what the gospel meant, he didn't just teach it in terms of what they knew as Hebrews. He taught them as Hebrews to be, go, to be able to go into a Greek culture, a Western culture, a culture that saw things quite a bit differently than the Jews did. You know, in the first century, in fact, earlier than that, all around Israel there were people groups who worshipped other gods. And each one of those gods had their own story, their own myth, their own origin, their own character, and their own blessings and curses. And it is very instructive to note that those people who worshipped a whole panoply of gods sought to design their lives so that at the central place of their life, their central focus of affection would be the God that they worshipped. And that was true for many, including Alexander the Great. And it's interesting, three centuries before Jesus Christ came on the scene, Alexander the Great came to a little town 25 miles south of Ephesus. Now, Ephesus at the time was like New York City. It was large, it was a cultural center, it was a commercial center, it was the place to be, and yet Alexander the Great, while he travels through Ephesus, doesn't stop there. Instead, he goes to this small town called Perine, 25 miles south of Ephesus. And there, he determines that he will live for over a year. And the reason he decides to go there and stay there is because there is in that town of Perine a temple. And the temple is the temple of Athena, the daughter of Zeus, the goddess of life. Now, the architect of the temple was the same man who designed one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. And it was impressive, this temple of Athena, and yet it wasn't finished. He built it on the largest peak overlooking the city. It was on a terrace of rock. 
It was high above the defensive walls of the city, but it wasn't completed. And it, Alexander the Great decided to stay in Perine so that he, by his own resources, could finish that temple. And though the temple was designed with gold and with silver, it wasn't its gold and silver that immediately impressed. You know what impressed people the most? It was the stone. It was white marble stone, one stone upon the other. And because of its, its size and because of its, its brilliance and because of its location on that highest ridge, it is said that even ships out in the Mediterranean 20 miles away could see the temple of Athena and use it as a lighthouse. Now the goddess Athena was considered to be the god who protected all civilized life, all art, all agriculture. They called her the Lord and giver of life. And they built a statue to her, 21 feet tall, made of solid gold. And right next to her, right next to this Massive idol was an altar that was the center of every person's life. You see, without paying homage to this goddess, you couldn't eat. You couldn't buy or trade. You couldn't even receive any fire because all of the fire for the whole town came from that altar of Athena in that temple. Without bowing down to her, you couldn't serve in politics. Without worshiping her, you couldn't live. And so let me ask you a question. How do you think Christians lived in Perine? They weren't willing to bow down to the goddess Athena. So how could they get their needs met? How could they buy and trade? How could they eat? How could they have fire? How could they exist you know, for years, whenever I read that text from Paul to the Corinthians in chapter 3, I always thought he was talking about individuals. And so whenever I read that text, I always think about what God was saying to me as, a, as an individual. So Paul writes this, In him, you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by his Spirit. I thought he was talking about individual Christians. Whenever I thought of the temple of the Holy Spirit, I thought of my body. That he was dwelling in me. If you're a smoker here today, you probably heard people say, Hey, that's the temple of the Holy Spirit. You shouldn't get nicotine all over it. Yeah, you hear that stuff, right? McDonald's. Whenever I read Paul's words to the Ephesians in chapter 2, I thought he was talking about individual Christians. You are fellow citizens with saints and members of the household of God. I thought he was talking about individuals. And yet Paul isn't. I mean, he is, but it's secondary to his primary point. He means what Peter means when he says that the church is composed of living stones. You know, if you're a Christian in Perine, and it's interesting, they, they formed their insulas, it was called, church communities, right on the main drag. 
right on Frankstown. <laughs> they didn't go off into the woods. They went right on the main drag. And so people would say to them, where's your temple? Where's your God? Where's your source of life? You're living, but I don't see you at the temple of Athena. Where do you get your food? Where do you get your water? Where do you get your nourishment? Where do you get your money? Where do you get your fire? You know what those Christians would say? Come see. You see, in that town, there was another temple. There was a temple greater than the temple of Athena, and it was called the church. Instead of being built of large, white, marble stones, it was built with people, human stones, that when they came together, they were inhabited by the Holy Spirit of God, and they became the house of God. In fact, whenever they referred to themselves, they talked about being members of the household of faith. And that should be no surprise to us. Because throughout the Old Testament, whether it's the tabernacle or the temple, what makes it the house of God? It's not the stone. It's not the wood. It's not the beautiful gold. What makes the tabernacle or temple the dwelling place of God is that God dwelt in its midst. You see, that's the testimony of the early church. God lives in us as we're built together. Listen to what the Lord says to Isaiah. Jerry read it earlier. Remember the rock from which you were cut, the quarry from which you were dug. In other words, God's saying you weren't built, you weren't cut, you weren't designed, you weren't chosen by human hands. You were cut and quarried and chosen by God for one purpose, that he might bring together people who worship him and have him in this very presence in the center of their worship. That was the testimony of the early church. Think of it. They didn't come into Asia with just the words of Jesus. They didn't come into Asia with just the works of Jesus. They didn't just come into Asia doing miracles. They did that, but that isn't what they did primarily. What they did primarily was they lived together as the temple of the Holy Spirit. They began to live in juxtaposition to the temple of Athena. And whenever they went out into the streets and people would say, where is your temple? They'd say, come and see. Come with me. Come meet my brothers and sisters. But more than that, when you meet us and we're together in worship, you will meet the living Lord Jesus Christ. And through those little communities called insulas, the church of Jesus Christ exploded all over Asia into a culture of narcissism and individualism 
The Holy Spirit began to build houses of God where Jesus dwelled. And when people came into that house of God, that worship center, and they saw the way they loved each other, and they saw the way they ministered everyone's need, you know what they discovered? They discovered two things. That Jesus is Lord and Athena is a fraud. Because in those insulas, they saw Christians loving each other selflessly. They saw them eating together the bread of life. They saw these living stones drinking together the living water of Jesus Christ. You know, in the temple of Athena, they had a spring out on the edge of town about four miles. They piped that spring water into that temple so that that's where you could get your living supply of water. They called it living water. But when these pagans came into the temple of God, the church, the insula, they not only ate the bread of life, they found living water. And when they watched and they saw people being prayed for who were sick and they were recovering and they saw demonized people being delivered, they experienced the living God. And they couldn't deny it. Of all of their experiences in the temple of Athena, they didn't compare to being in the presence of the creator of the universe the Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, isn't that exactly what Jesus means? When he gathers his disciples together in that upper room around that table, and he says, I've earnestly desired to eat this Passover meal with you. And he lifts the bread and he says, this is my body broken for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. And then he lifts a cup and he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. It's my blood sacrifice for you. Drink this in remembrance of me. And then he says to them, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you show forth my death until I come again. Let me ask you something. What's the proof that Jesus loves sinners? You know what the proof is? That you and I love each other. What's the proof that Jesus forgives sin? You know what the proof is? That you and I forgive each other. What's the proof that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life? You know what the proof is? that together we walk in the way. We study the truth. We dedicate our lives to Him. You know, for years I would read Jesus' words in Revelation chapter 3 or 2 to the Ephesians. Remember what He says there? I have this one thing against you. You've left your first love. And you know what I always thought when I read that? I thought He was talking about their love for Jesus. Right? You've left your first love. You've left your first love. You've left me. That's not what he's talking about. I think what he's talking about is you've left your love for one another. That was the love they had. 
at first. They loved him because they loved each other. And by loving each other, they grew to love him. Did you know that within 100 years of the ascension, more than 85% of all of Asia became Christians? You say, how is that possible? How is it possible that a, a place which is modern-day Turkey, Asia, could come to know Christ in such a profound way? 85% of the population. You know how it was? Because they began to love each other like Christ loved them. Within a hundred years, their bond together produced an explosion of the gospel that radically transformed Asia. But you know something else? Within a hundred more years, there were almost no Christians in Asia. You say, how is that possible? Well, the persecution ended. When the saving gospel of Jesus Christ began to be the majority report, everyone was free to go and do whatever they wanted to, and they did. The insula was replaced by the insular. And you know something? That's the day in which we live. The insula has been replaced by the insular. A few weeks ago, a man said to me, they don't serve communion very much in my church anymore. I said, why? I said, well, he said, well, we've been do doing it for so many years. I mean, you know, after you eat some bread and drink some juice after a while, don't you figure it out? I mean, why have communion so much? We've done it so often. I mean, what's to that? I mean, after you eat and you drink a little bit, after you do it, I mean, don't you figure it out? You know what I said to him? In our day, it takes a lifetime to figure it out because we're Greek thinkers. It's all about me. It's all about what I want to do. It's all about what turns me on. It's all about me. And Jesus says, no, it isn't. It's all about the corporate you. Let me ask you something. When you came in here this morning, how many of you thought you were going to be the temple of God? How many of you thought about when you got together, you would become the dwelling place of God for this hour? You see, it's so easy in our day to think of the church in terms of anything but the dwelling place of God. It's easy to think of church as a place you go to connect with your friends, where you hear some music you enjoy, where you hear some words that aren't boring, where you meet some friends for the first time, you have some food, you have some good feelings, and Jesus says this, this is my body. You are a living, dwelling temple. I desire for you to grow up into that. That's why I said earlier, it's so fantastic. Today we had baptisms, communion. Perfect illustrations of the fact that it's not about me. 
It's about him and us. Just think what this place, what this group, what this collection of people would be if we dropped the Greek me and embraced the Hebrew we. Think about that as you come to his table today. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we ask you to forgive us for not knowing history better. For Lord, we know that if we knew it better, we could see the clear tracings of your hand. Forgive us for being people who believe that everything in the Bible is just for our individual selves when the reality is the opposite. It's for the corporate us. Lord, you've called us to come together to love one another, to minister to each other, to meet the needs of each other, and then you illustrate that perfectly in that Last Supper. So, Lord, we pray today as we come before you at your table that as we come repentantly with a desire to be knit together as brothers and sisters in Christ, that you might perform a mighty work in each one of us, that we might begin to think more of the we than the me, that we might begin to see our connection with one another, that we might begin to experience the love and forgiveness and provision of your hand through each other. As we eat and as we drink, may we be nourished to live like that. For we ask it in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.